Hi, I'm Kevin Harrington, an original shark from the hit television show Shark Tank, and you're listening to the Underdog Podcast. I've been too high up to fall, question marks, what's up with y'all? All we know is over time, barking like some underdogs. Underdogs, underdogs, underdogs. All we know is over time, barking like some underdogs. Underdogs, 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 underdogs. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Underdog. Today, I have an amazing guest here with me, Ned. He's in the building. How are you, my friend? Hey, how are you? I'm doing awesome. How are you? Excellent. Thank you. Amazing, my friend. Oh, my God. You're such a rock star. I know you're always traveling. You're always up to something new and innovative. And like, since I've met you through MTED, like you just like such a beautiful energy and like you're always looking to help other people. But then like you're a beast in business, too. So I can't wait to get into your story. And I'm going to start with my favorite question, which is what inspired you on your journey to where you are today, my friend? For me, it wasn't so much inspiration. It was more uh, desperation. Right. Mm-hmm. So I grew up in uh, I grew up in Eastern Europe and I grew up in a I wouldn't say wealthy family, but like well educated, nice life. We would, you know, take ski trips a couple times a year and and things were good. And I grew up in a country that was called Yugoslavia. And then in 1991, the war started and my parents money was locked up in a bank. I was in the war for about two years two slightly over two years. And then figure out a way to get the hell out of there and get to the United States, right? And I got to tell you, like, the first few years in the U.S. were rough. It's not that I didn't like it. I didn't appreciate it. And it took me a few years to realize what an amazing country U.S. is. The opportunities. You don't see it when you first land here, right? It takes a bit of getting used to cultural difference and all that. So when I landed, I didn't have much. And like most immigrants, you want to create a life here. So it wasn't the inspiration. It was the desperation of, like, I want my life to be at least what it was where I grew up, right? Like, or better than that. Right. So I think desperation is a great motivator. Absolutely. I was just going to say, like, desperation is actually inspiration, to be honest, in in many circumstances, for sure. And I didn't know you grew up in Yugoslavia. You know, I'm from Albania. Yes, yes, yes. I was born. Yeah, that's where I was born and came here when I was five. But yeah, 1991 with the communist collapse in Albania, that's where a whole bunch of mess happened in the whole Eastern... European region of the world. And I didn't know you were in that war either, Ned. Oh my goodness. Wow. Yes, yes, yes. I try to focus on, you know, a lot of people talk about it, like in terms of Zen and being present. I'm a little religious, I'm Jewish, and think of it in Jewish terms, but basically think about Judaism is all about action, right? Mm -hmm. Even if you have like negative thoughts, but you take positive action, that's really what counts. Right. So, so my focus is always on like, what am I doing now? I'm only as good as my last action. So action and number one and the number two is the, is the ultimate responsibility. So we have this thing and we practice it. Sometimes people say they hurt your feelings or they do something to you. My intentions were good. In Judaism, it doesn't count what your intentions were. Only thing that counts is the outcome. Mm. So, so you're held accountable for your outcome, not your intent. So being that I'm always focused on outcome, and taking action, it makes me live in this thing that people call present, right? So yeah. if something negative happens, I try to be like, okay, what did I learn from it? Now let's move forward. Right. Amen. And what I love is like you mentioned, you came to the US and like now you were starting to build your life and you were wanted to basically create what you had back 
in your home country for here, as you know, is super different. Like there's a lot of rules. There's a lot of culture shock because things are very right. different. You know, the world is much more fast paced. You go to Europe, Eastern Europe, everyone's oh, coffee, stay at coffee, <laughs> drink coffee all day, all day. And like my, I remember my father going back to Albania for the first time in 22 years. He went for my wedding this past, um, this past year for okay. the first time. And he said, how do these people make money? They sit, <laughs> they sit here all day i'm like that i don't know they, i mean they figure it out they figure out a way to make it happen but like here is just like i remember my parents telling me when they came growing up in eastern europe like it's just a, culturally is like a whole nother world and like everything like work-wise and all of that so how did you first establish yourself here and basically start like cranking it out because like you said it was like the very beginning it was like ground zero for you pretty much that's right so full disclosure i'm not very smart but I get very lucky. I have this thing where I believe in, like I said earlier, focusing on what's in front of me. I'm not a person that holds grudges. Recently, I was talking to somebody and they said somebody kind of wasn't upfront with me a few times, like three times. And now it's a fourth time around and I'm still doing business with them. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a few people have told me I would never have done that. I always give people the benefit of the doubt. So like you said, when I first landed here, what I realized as and I'll say it again, this country is the best place in the world. What I found in the United States is when you work hard, you stay humble, you keep your head down, and you do good by people, people come out and want to help you, mm -hmm. which isn't the case in Europe. It's not the case in Asia. It's not the case pretty much anywhere else in the world. The country that I grew up in, when you do well, other people try to knock you down versus United States. When you come in and you put in the hard work, it doesn't take a rocket scientist. You just don't overpromise. Promise what you know you can deliver. Deliver it in a time frame that you said you're going to do it in. And keep doing that. And keep your word even when things don't go right. Fight for the outcome and enjoy the process. And that's really been, I can give you countless examples of struggles. And I struggle every day. I have this story where I went to the rabbi several years ago, um, Rabbi Moish Krasniansky out of Montreal, well-established rabbi. And I came and I told him how I had a company and a second company and I was looking at something else and I had all the stress and anxiety and I felt like I was struggling internally. And he says, well, what's the result of your struggle? I said, rabbi, I can't sleep. There are at least two or three nights a week where I, I just can't fall asleep. The next day I'm like, I'm in the darkness, I'm working, but I'm not being productive. And he asked me, so how often do you struggle? I said, Rabbi, at least two, three days a week. He said, herein lies the problem. And I said, that's what I said, Rabbi. He <laughs> says, herein lies the problem. I said, what is the problem? He says, us Jews, we struggle six days a week, not two or three. So go home and think about it. And I got to tell you, when he first told me that I was pretty upset, right? Yeah. I was going to flip him one and say, you know, <laughs> you later on, Rabbi. <laughs> but but I, I thought about it. And actually, after about a week, my anxiety just kind of released. And what I realized is that during the whole process, I felt like I was being a victim. And I was thinking, like, why is this happening to me? I'm a good person. But then I accepted the fact that the struggle is our life. Mm. And, and then we need to struggle in life. And the only way to get better is when you're uncomfortable. You know, you can't go through life being comfortable. So I started sleeping those two, three nights a week. But then on the days where I felt comfortable, I was like, oof, I'm not struggling. So I pushed to be in that state of struggle. And now, and then the business took off. So six days a week, I struggle. And then seven days, I take Sabbath off, spend time with family, friends, and don't do much. <laughs> 
That's amazing, Ned. That's amazing. Thank you so much for, for sharing that. I love how the spirituality piece is a really big piece for you, right? Yes. I've found that the most successful people on planet Earth are the most spiritual. Well, whatever it may be, right? Well, they Everyone has their own belief system and all that, right? And I love all of it. And I love hearing all the perspectives. Was that something that like started with you as like as, once you were a kid and then you kept that going once you came to the US? How was it implemented in your life at, at an early stage? Or was it? Or did it come later? No, it wasn't. At early stage, it wasn't there, right? So, mm-hmm. so I grew up in a communist country, you know, yeah. and then by the time the country fell apart and communism melted, I was like 16 years old. So I didn't really have, my parents grew up their whole lives in a communist system. So they, we didn't have a, a, a set of beliefs. We had some family, cultural, like education is important. And, you know, being good with other people is important. But I didn't have the real true values. And there wasn't anything that I followed. And I got to tell you, my life would have been a whole lot easier if I did. But what I find is that sometimes you appreciate things more when you first struggle and then you discover a solution. So I'm, I'm really, really appreciative. Just same like with the United States. I didn't really appreciate the country and I didn't see what it had to offer. And I was like, well, they're asking you to do this. And then you have all these rules. And and then when you realize, you know, these rules have created a great nation and a nation where people help one another and they're supportive and they're caring. There's something called human dignity. It's really, really important. Human dignity is something that I focus on on a daily basis, whether it's somebody that brings me a glass of water at the restaurant or somebody that changes the oil in my car, I do understand that every human being, whether they're a pilot or a car mechanic or garbage man or a garbage woman or a truck driver or an investor, everyone deserves to be treated with dignity. I think that reflects in our company as as a whole. I love that, Ned. Well, I mean, it's amazing to see the spiritual journeys of things, right? And like kind of how it attaches to the success of business. It's so fascinating. So when you came here, what was your career path like? Like how did things start off and basically to fast forward to where you are today? Where I'm at right now, I'll give you like 60 seconds and I'll kind of give you where I'm at right now because that's kind of more important. So like I said, my life has been riddled with struggle and challenges, but I don't focus on those. My focus is on what's ahead. So I've had a challenge after challenge. Somebody sold me a property that was a dud. I was lucky. Tenants weren't paying rent. I was lucky to be able to turn it around, you know, and bring in new tenants with a new niche. And the tenants were Eastern Europeans, where I grew up, there were refugees and needed places. I helped turn it around. And life has always been, you know, I get into a tough situation and then I have to figure out my way out of it. And then somewhere along the way, probably about 15 years in business, people said, you're an overnight success. And I said, I know it took only 15 years, right? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so, so people around you, they don't notice it. They don't notice the hard work. My friends were going out and partying. I didn't. It wasn't until 10 years in business, I had a large exit. Then I went and bought my first brand new car, you know, and I bought a Nissan Altima and not like the fully loaded version. It was like the, you know, not the lowest, but the step up with power windows and locks. Because <laughs> I knew that's all I needed, right? Very frugal, investing my money and pushing forward. Luckily, now I don't have to think about money, but the habits of, of being frugal and saving and, and carrying forward 
really um, set me up to where I'm at. And today I can talk about specifics. We invest in industrial, more specifically logistics, e-commerce properties. Some of our tenants are Amazon, TJ Maxx, Zara, uh, Schneider, Penske. We have large tenants. But really what got me to this point was that I started in real estate pretty early on. I even did commercial lending. I even did lending side of it at uh, Citibank. And then I have my own lending company. I had a construction company at some point because I was doing some projects and I felt like the contractors were taking advantage of me. So I was a bit of a micromanager at my earlier stage. And it all got me to about to a point about, I would probably say about seven or eight years ago, where I realized that in order to make significant impact and create a change, you need to be in the flow. And I never really understood what is the flow because everyone says you got to be in the flow. So I tried meditating and being in the flow. It didn't really work out for me. You didn't sit there. Yeah, I didn't. It didn't. I would be in the flow for two hours and I go back to work and get smacked right in my face, right? <laughs> by, by a new challenge. So then I realized what flow was for me. I started observing and paying attention to social change meaning how is the society evolving and changing? So if you think about society in US in 1800s, radio was a way of communication, mass communication, and a railroad was a place that transported goods. Sears was the company that basically owned the market share. Like everybody had a Sears mail order catalog. They would circle in it what they want. They would save for it, put it on layaway, whatever it was. In 1940s and 50s, you know, 50s and then 60s, Americans had cars. So these things called malls emerged, shopping malls. And then all the way from 60s to like late 2000s, these malls were emerging everywhere. The mall was the American staple, meaning like you can go there, shop. If you had a kid who was like in high school, high school kids could go hang out there. It was safe. There was security there, right? They can shop. There was food there. There was social aspect of it. You would meet up with your friends. You didn't have to call your friends and say, I'm going to the mall. You go to the mall and run into some of your friends. It was really the place to be. And then what I noticed as of 2000s, people started switching to the switching online and more and more people started using apps, you know, from dating apps, plenty of fish and match.com to, to Tinder and Bumble and, and whatever the new ones are out there. I'm not using them because I'm in a relationship. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, so I, I don't i don't know what's current you know disclaimer. Uh, yeah disclaimer uh you know i don't know what's current but, but basically people start using that and instead of going to the mall to get food people are using uber yeah. eat right and they're shopping online i'm shopping online then i see my mom is shopping online you know and she's not a she's not really friendly so about six or seven years ago i noticed it and i started looking into that industry and i Typically, because I'm not very smart, I don't try to go figure it out myself. I try to people who find people already doing it and they've been in it for five or six years and partner with them. And that's that's mm -hmm. what I did. And that's how our current platform emerged. So typically we look at social change and then as social change is happening, we also look at what are the brands and advertisers want, right? Because they're going to they're gonna fuel, either they're going to fuel the change or they're going to fight the change. So what we noticed is that Nike and Zara and even Macy's now, all these companies actually want online sales. Nike doesn't want to sell to a distributor that sells to a wholesaler, that sells to a retailer and eats up 60 or 70% of their margin. They want to select or sell directly to you. So once we notice that that's going to be the trend and people want the next day delivery, we started focusing on urban, suburban, last mile and service e-commerce properties. 
So logistics properties within suburbs and cities. So not your large million square foot warehouses on the outskirts, but actually in the city. Because that, that's where like, there's not a lot of industrial land. Whatever is there is there. Supply is flat and demand is growing. So once we really looked into the metrics and saw what was happening, we got into it about six years ago. And now we're proving to be an overnight success. <laughs> that. Well, I mean, you were just looking at like the incoming trends and you're tagging along with the number one experts in the field to figure out, hey, what's, you know, what are the growth strategies here? And it's crazy because the industrial market has exploded in the last I want to say 10 years, but specifically the last five years, right? Especially That's COVID right. drew it up even further, right? Because people couldn't leave their house. They couldn't go to the mall. They couldn't shop outside. A lot That's of people right. were getting stuff inside. So now it's like a whole nother stratosphere of business opportunity that entrepreneurs should take advantage of because now right. retail storefronts are shrinking and industrial warehouses are increasing. Of course. Exactly. And people don't understand how big of a market it is. So if I, if I want to compare, so like everybody talks about crypto and NFTs. And if you look at crypto and NFTs, that market today's current estimate is somewhere between 1.5 to $3 trillion, right? Which is like, it's a good size market. But if you look at commercial properties, you know, worldwide, it's a $250 trillion market. It's 150 times the size of the crypto Right. And I'm not saying don't do the crypto. I'm, I'm investing in it passively to somebody who knows what they're doing, or at least I think they know what they're doing. So, you know, the market's big enough. The opportunity is great enough. Money's flowing that way. So when I talked about being in the flow, if the society is changing in this way, advertisers and, and investors are moving this direction. If you can position yourself in the right place and get around the people who know what they're doing, you have to be very unlucky not to make money, right? right. So, so, so rather than, for example, some people are very smart and they still, they're still buying retail stores. Right. And I go, I'm not that smart. I can't, the, the market's flat and it's shrinking. I can't, I don't have that kind of foresight to know what's going to be good and bad and which companies are going to do well or not. I want to be in a market where the, you know, it's a rising tide that rises all the ships. So I, I rely on luck heavily. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, it's, it's mitigated risk, right? So like you looked at like, what are the trends? What's happening? What, where's the growth in the next five to 10 years in a logistical manner, which is what every entrepreneur should do. Because if you're not innovating and you're not staying ahead, you're going to be left behind. And that's what a lot of people are struggling with right now, commercial landlords with the office space, right? They're mm -hmm. like, oh, my tenants don't need 20,000 square feet anymore, 10,000 square feet anymore. Okay, great. So what do you do? You take those, you get creative, you take those and you make those micro units. And so more and more people can afford them and get into them. But some people get lazy, right? But it's like, if you study those trends that that's what's happening, then that's what you would do. But like you said, staying innovative is really what's what's next and studying these business trends most importantly the consumer trends right which exactly. is exactly because you know consumer consumer spending is pretty much like two-thirds of american gdp if you think about it right it's two-thirds of all the money that turns over in the united states so you can you can't discount it and when people say well I, we don't know how far e-commerce is going to grow all i have to say I have a 14 year old daughter she's not even interested in going to the store she sees something on instagram you know, and if she has her own money, she clicks on it and buys it, given that she has her own money. So like, you know, when she has her own money, she's not going to want to. Why would you want to go to the store? What a hassle. And you have free shipping and free return. Yeah. Um, and what people don't understand is when you ship from retail to online, the demand on the industrial space 
is three times the amount of what was needed in retail. You have all the returns, you have the online retailers have to stock a lot more. You know, if you want to buy a pair of those glasses that you're wearing and you try and you know what the color you want, but you go on the store and they don't have it in stock, you're not going to buy a different color. You just jump on a different website and buy it from the other people. So they have to stock more. The returns are a lot more, but their margins are good enough to be able to handle it, right? Right. And another funny factor is that prior to COVID, 14% of all the retail was done online. After COVID, we're at theatering around 20%. China is at 50%. Five, zero. So we're far, far behind, right? 50%? 50%. What the hell? So they just want to control everything online for everybody? <laughs> no, I mean, listen, half of everything that you do is purchased online. And the reason why China was able, was able to adapt so quickly is because they didn't have the structure infrastructure the U.S. had. So it would be like when U.S. had dial-up internet, right? And some other countries didn't have it. For us to switch from dial-up to DSL at the time, right? Which was like a faster way or, or cable took many years. Where companies that didn't have dial, countries that didn't have dial-up, they jumped into doing something fresh. So U.S. is going to catch up. It's just replacing the existing infrastructure that people invested capital into and figuring out what to do with it, Amen. right? So, and another thing is like the industrial space in the cities and urban and suburban areas is limited. It's flat and the demand keeps growing. So what happens is that prices are going up and up and up. And when you say industrial is booming, it's because even if you buy something today and let's say you overpay by 10%, you buy something that's for it. 10 million for 11 and the rent growth in you're in Boston rent growth's over 20% a year. Two years later, you're ahead 30%, right? You, you're not, you're not behind versus if you buy something in retail and you pay, pay market value in two or three years, you're underwater rather than, so that's what I'm saying. Like being, you know, in the right place at the right time, having a team that's able to execute is, is crucial. I'm kind of discounting for that a little bit. But being in the right place at the right time is number one. Having industry knowledge, which takes two to five years to obtain, and then having a team that's able to execute is, is key. I am by far the least smart person on my team. <laughs> but but the thing is, like you, you know, you know your role really well, which is like I know what's needed and let me get the team out so that we can leverage all of our knowledge so we can execute and make these big and beautiful things happen in all these deals. Cause now you're going in and like, things are ridiculous, right? Because yeah. you trusted all the experts to crush that. And so That's now exactly it's a whole right. nother levels, whole nother stratosphere that you're going to because of that, which is, which is amazing. I trust. And I also, I measure. And another thing that I do is I line interest, meaning no one in a company has a large salary, but people get performance pay. Their performance pay is sometimes three to five to 10 to 15 times what they earn. So you really only make it big when you perform you know it's the outcome mentality <laughs> you know what really is the final outcome so and and what i do tend to do is we hire people where you know the culture is very important we don't just look at the resume but we look at family values what are your you know do you have do you have similar values that we do because if i know some great people they have different values than me and I wouldn't work with them, not because I don't dislike them. It's just at some point we're going to have a conflict of interest. Mm. You know, I don't want somebody who's going to earn a million or $2 and buy a Ferrari. 
I want people that are gonna, you know, be humble, remain humble, understand that even though they're getting lucky right now and doing well in life, it's some sort of a reward. But then also we as a company, myself and everybody on our, on our team also wants to help the, the less fortunate ones. So I want people who believe in contribution. I can't teach culture, you know, that comes from home. Right. And that's why I liked you, you know, because you have like the, the solid values. You grew up with parents who work hard. You understand the value of hard work. You don't have to be the smartest or the best. But at the end of the day, as long as you keep pushing forward and teaming up with the right people, that's really what it's about for me. hundred percent. And I love that you focus on the values, Ned. That's really important because some people are like, you're in business, focus on business. It's like, no, the culture. I mean, it's a whole it's a whole nother thing. Like you said, I think it's because of the areas that we're from that that's deeply instilled mm-hmm. it's a part of who we are and it's a part of our decisions it's a part of our business it's like who we are all day every day is yeah really what it's all about you know what i mean and so it has to be the culture has to be 100 because if you're not aligning with people personally you're not going to align with them business-wise either exactly. it would be like dating if you're dating and just <laughs> paying attention or if you're dating and paying attention to how people look you yeah. know if that was your if that was your how do they look how do they appear okay that's a factor but that's a minor factor. How they look now is not how they're going to look in 20 years, right? So, so look at, like, I always say, like, in my earlier days when I was dating, I'm like, look at the girl's mother. So if, if looks are important to me, yeah. not so much, but if looks are what's important to you, look at the mother. But looks are a small factor in faction. And then, and then also make sure that the person you're going to date or do business with has same values and same uh, that has alignment of interest because just doing a deal with somebody like one deal I don't have time for that making an extra five hundred thousand dollars doesn't excite me creating a partnership with somebody that's going to generate reoccurring revenue and that revenue is going to grow over many many years is what I look for you know I'm not looking for short hits and deals it's really about finding people who have same core values who want to make the world a better place in whatever day way they do it, who want to make the world a better place, who not just talk about it, but do it. You know, so, so if I had, if I was earning 20,000 a year, I would donate a few hundred dollars a year every year. If I was earning or a couple thousand, well, I couldn't afford a couple thousand when I was earning 20. But the more I earn, the bigger percentage of, of the money I give away every year. Because if you're not giving when you have a hundred dollars, you're not going to give when you have $100 million. You don't have that muscle, right? So I look at people, I'm like, do they give? If you don't have money, are you giving time? Are you volunteering in your community? If you're not volunteering in your community, are you helping your grandparents? You know, how often do you visit your grandparents is one of my interview questions, right? Or how often do you speak to them? It's important that people that we align with think beyond themselves. Amen. And I love that the the family values are so strong in that too. And that it's almost like business partnerships are like real relationships. They really are, right? It's a marriage. Integrated with these people. (laughs) It's a marriage. It's a a marriage. It's very similar. Wow. I love that. I love that, Ned. And question for you. So like, this this is one of my favorite questions. And you've dropped a lot of gems throughout the way. But I really want to know, what would your older self tell your younger self based on what you know now? Find a system of beliefs that works for you. You know, find the system. Don't invent the system. For me, Judaism is a, is a way that I connect. Find a system of beliefs that works for you 
incorporate it in your life and basically don't fake it, live your life with a set of values. That's what my older self or myself today would say to my younger self. I did a lot of flaunting and pretending in my earlier years, like fake it until you make it. You have to act a certain way rather than, you know, just being your genuine self. It's difficult, right? Because society offers you reward when you put on a different face and sometimes you miss opportunities. But when you, when you stay in your core belief and you, when you stick with your set of values, the long-term reward is, is much greater. I love that, Ned. Thank you so much for, for sharing that. I love that because that ties in with spirituality deeply, which I love so much because for me, the spiritual world, I mean, that that's really where like the more spiritual I was and the more that I would connect with myself and to my belief system, the more I would manifest here in this life and help more people and do more good things. Right. And so it seems like you and I have the the same wavelength when it comes to that, you know, and everybody has their own different belief systems. It's just a matter of find that belief system and roll with it and then watch it manifest in your life. I love that. I love exactly, exactly. Whether you're, whether you're, I don't know, I'm going to use the main religions, whether you're Jewish, Christian, Muslim, you know, Hindu, uh, I don't know, yogi, I don't know what, you know, what the new age, uh, I, I, I don't discriminate against anyone, but whatever works for you so you can connect and not just be a, a good person, but go beyond that, right? Meaning live in an uncomfortable and be comfortable being uncomfortable. Because um, life of comfort is not a life, right? I always, somebody told me once, I think it was a yeshiva boy that told me, like the life is like an escalator going down, right? Unless you're walking up and you're standing, you're going down. So yeah. you got to walk and not just walk. You got you to gotta huff up the stairs. And then whenever you're like, people always ask me when you're retired, I don't think ever, right? I may find something uh, different or new, or when I say something different or new, some right now, my vision is to grow an investment company that is open to the new generation. I see a lot of younger generation is investing in very risky things, which are crypto and all of this NFT. And, and that's great. They have a great potential. You should put a portion of your money in there. But as they start inheriting some of this money from their parents and moving forward, they don't really have access, unless you're an accredited investor, which most people are not, you don't have access to quality private equity, like real estate assets. So I, we don't have that today, but my vision in three to five years from now is to create a platform so that somebody who has $1,000 or $2,000 can invest in a quality asset where a quality operator, they have access to something that they would not in the past. I, like I said, I'm not open to that now. Uh, typically, our investments now are much higher minimums, but I see that we, we generate a lot of money for a lot of wealthy people, and I, I'm thankful to, to all the people who support us. <laughs> It's just, I would like to, at some point, find a way to open that pool up to, to the masses. And that would be, that's why I'm working so hard. I'm not trying to make another few bucks for myself because it won't change my lifestyle. I love that, Ned. I love that. And that kind of hints at where you're kind of going in the next six to 12 months. So that's like the long-term goal to open yeah. up a fund, basically, that's open to everybody to invest at least a little bit. Almost like, a, what are those new accounts, those investment accounts that you can put as little as like, I think like a dollar in stocks or something that the Robinhood app or something? Yeah, like Ro- Robinhood, Robinhood, but like something for Robinhood for real estate. Real estate. Right. Yeah. But not just any kind of real estate, because I see a lot of risky, bad deals out there. 
you know, and, and they're readily available. It's stuff that's got institutional quality that's, that's been vetted and really thought through really well. That's part of the safety bucket, meaning like if everything else falls apart, that this should be, you know, economy resilient because it's in that market that's growing, but like on a, on a, on a safer side, there's no such thing as like, you know, hundred percent safe, but safer than most things so that you know that you're going to have something at, you know, at an age where you don't want to push as hard or you want to focus on your family or, right. or whatever the, everybody has their, has their value. Some people are, you know, they spend a lot of time with their kids. I don't as much. I spend quality time with my kids. I would want to spend more time with my kids, but that would take away from the other vision that I have. So then I, I try to balance it. You know, you got to give some and get some, can't have it all. Can't have it all. That's correct. Oh my goodness. I love that, Ned. I love that. I love where you're going. And I too, and I'm sure like in the next year, you want to expand the industrial portfolio kind of all across the U.S., as well and just keep cranking with that yeah we're, we're doing that now we, we were, we're growing from a, a regional player which is like we started in midwest we were we expanded from midwest to east coast mostly southeast and a little bit up north and probably towards the end of the year mid to end of this year we're expanding to west coast we're expanding via established operators so we're not learning the new markets we're basically acquiring and JVing with, with existing operators in the markets who understand the value that we bring in. They're typically smaller operators and we will vet them and then run the basically the back office and make sure that the product is institutional quality. And you know what? I'm lucky to be able to do it. I, I keep going back to the being lucky thing, you know? I'm very lucky and very grateful to have this opportunity. Absolutely. Absolutely. I love that, Ned. And I mean, the thing is like, the reason why I think you're so lucky is because you have that that amazing spirit of wanting to give. I think there's something to be said about somebody who's grateful and who wants to do good things for the world, right? And then that's how all of a sudden you get luckier because right now it's it's not about you. It's it's about who are you going to help along the way, right? And the universe, God, whatever everyone believes in, right, will always bless the person that has the pure heart, right? So that's why I think you're if you want to say lucky, right? Because you're guided every single day. Your mission is guided and, and you recognize that, which I think is really important to note. And I love that. I absolutely love that, Ned. I really enjoyed today. You are amazing, my friend. Now you've got to let everyone know where to find you and your awesomeness. So you yeah. can find me on, I have a couple of companies. One's a development company, another one's an investment company. So the development company is ACES. So it's www.aciesre.com. And the second one is a development company. It's Cogent Capital Group. And it's a Cogent Capital GRP.com. Uh, you can find me there. You can find my contact for, or you can find me on LinkedIn. It's easy enough. And uh, send me a like, just say, or send me a contact, just say that you're coming from Pam and I'm pretty private. So unless I know where somebody's finding me, I don't typically respond. <laughs> so as long as I know they're, you know, your contacts and I'm, I'm, I'm happy to, to get back to them. And, and if I don't get back to you right away, I will. I'm just busy. Yeah, no, I love it. Ned, thank you so much for being here today. I absolutely loved your story, your journey and where you're heading, my friend. Thank you so, 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 so much. So that's it for today's episode of Underdog. Catch us next week, always dropping on Thursdays. And remember, if you're interested in real estate or want to learn how to create more money and magic in your life, check out meetwithpamela.com and let's chat. Sending you so, so much love. All we know is overtime.
looking like some underdogs. underdogs. underdogs.